Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of September 4th, 2023. The lawsuit against the city of Phoenix to disband its largest homeless encampment, known as The Zone, is still ongoing. As the city cleared another block late last week, local activists gathered outside the barriers to set up around it. Kirsten Dorman and Tori Gantz were there and have this report. Gray clouds hung heavy early Friday morning as city workers and machines cleared out the area between Madison Street and 10th Avenue. A man who goes by Q-Ball has been unhoused for roughly four years. For about half that time, he's lived in a tent around the corner. I know all the people and they're people like me. Even though I know that it's a dangerous place, I still feel more comfortable here than I do anywhere else in the city. Q-Ball says he knows the people that lived on this block, too. It is kind of heartbreaking to see you. Neighbors from different mutual aid groups set up folding tables just outside barriers on either side of the block. Nick Anderson was among them. We're down here about six times a month, every single Thursday and then every other Saturday, uh, just feeding folks, handing out whatever supplies that we can gather. He says they form relationships with people living here. Most are elders. Many are people with disabilities that prevent them from working. They're dejected, they're demoralized, they're upset. These are homes that they've built for themselves that have taken some time and resources that they've just had to come by because nobody's providing them. Rudy Solis is the director of operations at the Husta Center, right on the corner of the block being cleared. He says they also get to know these folks well, and many of them are... Trying to get the birth certificates or IDs, Social Security money or whatever it is, you know, or they're stuck in between 55 and 62, so they have nowhere to go right now. Solis says he's trying to encourage people from the block to look at the situation as an opportunity for a better future. He remembers being homeless for over five years. I always tell people, you know, don't judge them. This is somebody's grandmother and grandpa that you're talking about, that you're not, that you're passing by on the streets. Jessica Spencer, who goes by Lefty, says when people are moved, they often don't stay sheltered. So all I have is hearsay what people tell me, but a lot of people go into these hotels and then they're hit with restrictions when they get there. They're told one thing and then they arrive, there's a curfew. They can't have their dogs, they can't have whatever, and then it's either you either follow our rules right now or you're going out into the heat. Advocates sometimes refer to common things that many shelters either have rules against or require people to part with as the three P's, pets, property, and partners. Scott Hall is the deputy director of the city's Office of Homelessness Solutions. He says that in the two weeks leading up to each block clearing, city staffers attempt to assess people's needs and place them in shelters accordingly. That's why we created all these diverse sets of resources, create shelters that take partners, that take pets, and how we have property programs and different housing resources. Still. Do people go back to the street? Absolutely they do. It's kind of like in, in treatment, relapse is a, is a reality. Hall says he's working to gather data on how many people that happens to, to figure out next steps while efforts continue to get people into housing. Out of all the engagements, we've had an 80% positive outcome of people taking placement. Angeles Maldonado is the CEO of Ybarra Maldonado Law Group. She watched the street sweep from behind the yellow tape. What I'm seeing is just a bunch of people, you know, being paid to um, dislocate 
people. Maldonado is a legal observer, volunteering with the National Lawyers Guild. We're just watching and, and um, documenting. I think people definitely act differently when they know they're being observed. Even if people make it into shelters now, she says that's not enough. They're being moved out of one street, but the reality is they're, they have nowhere to go. Rents are too high, you know, unemployment, all the different reasons. With his dog beside him, Cuball watched the last of the mattresses, shopping carts, and other items go into the garbage truck idling in the middle of the street. To those not there, he has this message. Think about be, them being the ones in it. You know, being there in the middle of it, see how that would make them feel. That their friends' homes are all getting destroyed. While Cuball says he doesn't know when his block will be cleared, he's preparing himself for the day city staff come. I don't want to stay here but I don't want to leave under a, a forced hand. For KJZZ News, I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Tori Gantz, reporting from downtown Phoenix. In business news, soundies are the music videos that came decades before MTV, even before television was widespread. As Jill Ryan reports, a small subset of these soundies brought a more diverse reflection of 1940s America to the mainstream, partially contributing to, as some experts claim, the foundation of the civil rights movement. In the 1940s, the world was at war, and America was also deep into its Jim Crow era, and the Civil Rights Act wouldn't be passed for more than 20 years. But amid the turmoil, a short-lived gem in American cinema was created. Each week, eight three-minute films on massive reels were dispersed across the country, featuring musicians, dancers, and even uncanny chicken impressions. These are soundies. While most starred white people, a significant subset featured black performers, allowing a unique opportunity at the time for black stars and stars-to-be to gain fans from both black and white audiences. Soundies give us a different sense, a much broader sense of who an American was back then, not only in their depiction of black people on screen, but also people of other races and ethnicities and gender. That's Susan Delson, a cultural historian who wrote a book on how soundies changed the way black people were depicted on screen. She was part of a team of experts that worked with Kino Lorber Studio Classics, UCLA, and the Library of Congress to find, collect, refurbish, and put into context 200 soundies out of the nearly 2,000 soundies ever created. Each shows a slice of early 20th century American history and provided a platform for many artists. What resulted was a home video package called Soundies, the Ultimate Collection, released in July. Soundies envisioned Black Americans on screen in a way that Hollywood just was not doing very much at the time. Uh, Soundies picture Black people as stylish, smart, sophisticated, and successful. Juxtapose that with the racist depiction of black workers in Disney's original Dumbo, which hit movie screens the same year Soundies began. They played on massive jukebox-like film machines called panorams, and due to war-related shortages, only about 3,000 machines were made. Panoram operators put them in large gathering spaces like bars, bus depots, clubs, usually in northeast and mid-Atlantic cities, but there were some in Arizona. Ina Archer worked on the Ultimate Collection 
collection and is a media conservator with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. She said Soundies let performers tell stories where they could just be themselves. Their race didn't drive the plot line. Archer describes a particular Soundie that features a black policeman singing about how excited he is to meet a woman. And then it changes to this wedding scenario where they're getting married and she's got this amazing wedding dress on. And he's so excited about her. It is kind of an operatic head, you know, here comes Emily Brown. Out of all the soundies created, about 15% featured black performers. For African-American cinema before 1970, that is a remarkably intact archive. And it documents an era of Black entertainment history that we just don't have very much on film in any other way. Some of the performers, even 80 years later, are still household names like Doris Day and Nat King Cole. This song is the 1946 rendition of Got a Penny Benny, as performed by the original King Cole trio. Their success crossed state and racial lines. Playing the guitar is trio member Oscar Moore, a star in his own right, and he spent his formative years in Arizona. In some ways, and arguably even more more so than, than you know Charlie Christian, who's credited as the father of modern jazz guitar, Oscar kind of took that influence and he turned it into a working model that a lot of us in the contemporary jazz world still follow. That's Nick Rossi, a musician and historian. He says Moore likely learned how to play guitar while growing up in Phoenix. But all things come to an end. By March 1946, the war was over, and so too were the Soundies. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. You can find an extended version of this story on our website, kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Last month, the Arizona Game and Fish Department adopted a series of amendments to guide the agency's relationship with tribal communities. Gabriel Pietrazio reports on the process to modernize an outdated policy and the man behind the effort. I grew up on the res, so I'm a res boy. John Cooley kept in touch with his tribal upbringing. His father was an enrolled member of the White Mountain Apache tribe and lived on the Fort Apache Reservation in eastern Arizona. Cooley served a seven-year stint as director for the tribe's Wildlife and Outdoor Recreation Division. Later, in 2004, he joined the Arizona Game and Fish Department. His unique connection to indigenous conservation and wildlife efforts made him an ideal candidate to become the agency's tribal liaison. And recently, Cooley updated a tribal cooperative agreement that hadn't been revised since 1991. I think what really triggered my involvement on this policy was GOTR, the Governor's Office on Tribal Relations, under the former administration. Governed by Republican Doug Ducey. But definitely has continued through the current administration. Working with tribes to modernize this outdated agreement was long overdue and even years in the making, according to Cooley. Although his amendments effectively changed nothing, it's important for those who pay attention. His first proposal starts with rewriting its title. The old policy says something about law enforcement training on Indian reservations. The new policy puts it in the context of coordinating with tribal government. 
shifting the department's framing from reservations to governments. Indian reservations are land masses. Tribal governments are sovereign authorities. That's an important distinction, and we made a point to highlight that in the revision. Originally, the scope of his agency's agreement centered solely around law enforcement. Now, the revised language broadens that relationship to mention hunter education and outreach, as well as wildlife and cultural resources management. Wildlife doesn't understand boundaries. You know, they go and migrate where they where they please. Darren Talientua has been program manager for the Wildlife and Ecosystems Management Program at the Hopi's Department of Natural Resources for more than a decade. He says that shared interests may emerge between the state and tribes, warranting the need for such agreements. And depending on the species, that may benefit both the state, tribe, and maybe the feds at times. The Golden Eagle in particular. The Hopi tribe has historically secured federal permits from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to capture and sacrifice nestling golden eaglets, part of their rituals and religious observances. Many of these aerial predators call the canyons within Coconino County home, which is where a portion of the Hopi's 1.5 million acres of reservation lands are located. Antaliantua, a Southwest Regional Director for the Native American Fish and Wildlife Society, says collaboration between state and tribal authorities is paramount for preserving that population. It's a cultural species that we really look at. That's something we share with the Arizona Game and Fish. Being invited to offer comments and feedback on this policy was welcomed and a refreshingly simple process. It wasn't that much of a huge task, but, you know, it was good enough to where it worked for all the tribes. And Cooley agreed. With that feedback, I then took steps internally to move it down our process before it goes to the commission for review. His proposal was unanimously approved in August. I want to thank you for doing this. That's Arizona Game and Fish Commissioner Clay Hernandez. I recognize the amount of time our Game and Fish Department works closely with the various tribes and how committed those departments mm-hmm. are to the same goals that we have. And I believe that this agreement here continues to foster that. And we're very appreciative of the work that they do with us and the work that we get to do with them. 27% of the state of Arizona is Indian country. Robert Miller, an Eastern Shawnee law professor who teaches in the Indian legal program at ASU's law school, explains why agreements like this one arise in Arizona. This state has gotten used to there being so much Indian country and that they have to cooperate and that it's both good policy to do so. Incremental changes, even as perceivably small as a couple of language revisions, add up over time. And Taliantua, who began his conservation career as a wildlife technician, has noticed that dialogues are improving, not only for Hopi and other indigenous peoples, but all Arizonans. You know, I have to say that the state has made huge progress in fostering those relationships with the tribes. 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't like this with the state. But they've come a long way in working together to make it better for all. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. The president of the Navajo Nation signed the tribe's Victims' Rights Act of 2023 on Wednesday morning. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michel Morisco reports. The law is intended to create more awareness for victims of sexual assault, rape, and domestic violence. 
It also clarifies the meaning of what constitutes a victim, an advocate, and what without consent means. And it's intended to protect victims from retaliation and harassment, as well as enable them to participate in the criminal justice process. This is the third administration of trying to do this work. It shouldn't be this hard. Amber Crotty is a Navajo Nation Council delegate and has been working on the legislation. President Boo Nigren spoke after Crotty at the signing. Still in his first term, the president has vowed to work closely with the Navajo Nation Council, which is one-third women, the largest representation of women in the council's history. I have that commitment. I want to make sure that you young ladies that grow up here on the Navajo Nation have the most opportunity to be whoever the heck they want to be. Nigrin vowed to continue supporting underrepresented members of the Navajo Nation. Michelle Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news. Arizona is channeling $40 million in federal COVID-19 relief funding toward tutoring students falling behind in school. Greg Haney reports. Superintendent Tom Horn said the cash was taken back from other programs approved by his predecessor, Kathy Hoffman. Horn said the department is not pulling funding from all of the organizations who received aid, just those who could not show that students were making academic progress or were running out of time to spend their funding. We sent out a memo to the vendors and we asked them to let us know, show data showing that their efforts have increased learning of the students. The recouped money will be given out on a first-come, first-served basis for first through eighth grade students who failed to pass proficiency tests in reading, writing, and math. The website to sign up goes live September 15th. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ's original productions, from the show, we consider what's lost in the hyper-convenience of our drive through culture. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Phoenix is the ultimate drive through town. In fact, Arizona was home to the very first McDonald's drive through in 1975 in Sierra Vista. Today, they are everywhere, from Starbucks to the Dutch Brothers phenomenon to the newfound popularity of Salad and Goes. And of course, there are your fast food joints. There's drive-up grocery pickup and a few drive through liquor stores left. The pandemic, of course, kicked all of this into high gear. I get it. They're easier. They're faster. You don't have to get out of your car in the summer heat. The list of pluses goes on. But I wondered, is there also something lost in all of this convenience? So to find out more, I turned to someone who knows a lot about communication, the director of the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication at ASU, Dr. Sarah Tracy. She told me there are two parts to communicating, the task at hand and the relationship behind it. Here's more. The thing that comes to mind is that more and more we have these ways to communicate that focuses on the task of communication, but it leaves out a lot of the richness of the relationship that we can get when we are interacting with people and in an embodied way. Hmm. Tell us more about that. Like, what do you think is lost in that? Like when we don't have this kind of face-to-face opportunity for communication? Yeah, so in our Communication 101 classes, we teach that communication has both the task and the relationship part. The relationship part is the the social connection that we get. So if we order online or if we order through a drive-through, it might actually be even better at the task mm. than if we are with 
the person and we are flirting or chatting and <laughs> laughing and joking and so on. But we miss all of that feeling of connection with others, which really gives us a lot of happiness and actually is also connected to our health. Interesting. How is it connected to our health? It sounds like there's been research on that. Yeah, I teach a course at ASU called Communication and the Art of Happiness. And when we look at the happiest people in the world, they are people that have rich social lives. They surround themselves not only with those close ties like family members, but also interact regularly with a community of others. And so when we reduce how much we have in terms of community connection, and when I say they're happier, they're also healthy. Healthiest. Mm. And so this does make a difference in terms of our physical and our mental well-being. It almost is like the 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 meet cute thing that happens in romantic comedies. Like that can't happen <laughs> in a drive-thru in the same way, right? Right. And you know, when we reduce being able to interact with people as full people and it's just focused on does this pizza have the right toppings? Does my coffee have the right number mm-hmm. of shots mm-hmm. of coffee in it? That's no longer there. Yeah, yeah. So we're also in this moment, Sarah, in which our society, I think, is is more divisive than it has been, at least in a long time. Mm -hmm. There seems to be pretty good agreement on that politically and, and culturally as well, like the divisions are more apparent. Do you think this kind of thing, this kind of isolation in our cars, on our phones, waiting in a drive through line, as opposed to having to be with real people inside a store, for example, does that contribute to this? It certainly can. I spent some of the summer in London and every day I was uh, literally physically rubbing up to other people <laughs> like on the sidewalk or brushing their arm or being nearby them when I'm in the tube and so on. And it reminds us that even if somebody, for instance, is reading a book or has a magazine that has a different political ideology, We all have something in common and we're all able to see how we need to work with one another in order to do something, even if it's as simple as how do we work together to get into this elevator Mm -hmm. or to get where we need to go in peace. And if you think about cars and the way that we interact with people in cars in Phoenix, a lot of people interact with cars as though they are things rather than actually people. And so we can engage in behavior that we would never engage with if we had to see another person's expression. Hmm. And I sometimes think about uh, times where someone might be really aggressive on the roadway, but then Once they catch up with someone at a stoplight, they're embarrassed to look at the other person. And it's because all of a sudden they're like, oh my goodness, I actually acted in a way that I wouldn't want to act if I had to see their face. Right. It like strips away the humanity in a way. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like little bombs on the freeway (laughs) rather than people. So we're being very negative about this, I feel. Is there anything that's gained in this? Like, is there maybe an opportunity to find this community in different ways or in in a different kind of setting? Yeah, sure, of course. So one of the things that is important to realize is that mediated communication, whether it's at the drive-thru or whether it's online or whatever, that is not an enemy. But it is, it's a tension that we're in where we need to think about 
what is it that I'm able to get from this venue of communicating and what is missing from it? Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes the task can be done more efficiently uh, with less you know, transportation costs and so on because we're able to talk online, talk from afar, et cetera. But if you find yourself in a space where you're feeling unconnected or you're feeling increasingly divided or lonely, I would recommend that you take a look at the venues of your conversations and communication and the balance of them. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that you can take a walk and um, actually see other people? It, does it make sense to knock on your neighbor's door rather than texting them when you have a message for them? Forcing yourself almost to be in situations where you'll physically see other people feels fair. So you mentioned something about loneliness. Tell me a little bit about how that might connect and how being in our cars or just sort of separated from each other physically could contribute to that kind of thing. Sure. Well, loneliness is a key part of suffering. And most people do not clearly communicate that they're suffering when they are in mediated spaces in a real literal way. The way that we recognize that people are suffering typically is through emotional leakage through their nonverbals. Hmm. So we see someone and we're able to notice that they're suffering. And it's through that that we're able then to reach out and actually practice some compassion. And when we think about, for instance, not only this topic that we're talking about, the car culture, but also the effects of COVID, mm. it's no wonder that there were more suffering people, more loneliness and so on, because we literally just did not know. And we, we cannot know as well that somebody is hurting when we're not with them. And if we don't know that they're hurting, it's harder for us to practice compassion. Will there, do you think, Sarah, be a backlash to this? Like, do you anticipate our societies becoming more and more insular in this way and finding more and more ways to maybe break out of that and and maybe finding some cool new things that come out of that? Possibly. I, I'm hopeful that there are people that are more and more realizing some of the things that they're missing when they don't have that embodied communication. However, we do tend to go with the, um, the thing that seems most immediately easy. And the lack of friction with other people in terms of ordering food, in terms of not having to deal with the emotional fallout of sending a certain text message like we might have to if we were face to face, it can be very tempting. And so what I try to do when I'm teaching students at ASU about this is really to help them understand through doing activities where they are in conversation and they journal about it mm. and they are able to better realize like, wow, this actually brought me a lot of happiness and a lot of connection and so on by doing these activities that they might, their default might be to do it in a mediated way, to mm -hmm. do it in a more embodied way. Yeah. All right. Some good advice to end on. Dr. Sarah Tracy, director of the Hugh Down School of Human Communication at ASU, joining us to talk more about this drive through culture. Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your expertise here. I appreciate it. Of course. It's been great. And finally, in science news. 
Over the past several weeks, health insurance giant Humana has reported an uptick in older adults being hospitalized for COVID-19. Humana mainly covers people ages 65 and older, who rank among the populations susceptible to the virus's most serious effects. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. COVID cases have been growing globally. The U.S. has seen a growth in people admitted for COVID of almost 16 percent over the past week, with medium to high hospitalizations in scattered counties in central, southern and eastern states and across Florida. Hospitalization numbers have remained low in Arizona. COVID-like and influenza-like illnesses account for only 1 to 2 percent of admissions since mid-May. The state did see a spike in mid-August to 2.4 percent. It's too soon to know which way it is trending. Experts recommend people blunt the impact of emerging subvariants by keeping current on boosters. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated.